Welcome to this latest in a series of podcasts prepared by the Joint Quantum Institute, a research partnership between the National Institute of Standards and Technology and the University of Maryland. JQI, as the name implies, specializes in quantum science and its applications. What about the podcast? Well, in each show, we try to make quantum reality a little less mysterious. It's still going to be a bit spooky, but generally it's explainable. My name is Philip Shuey, and here's my JQI colleague, Steve Ralston. Hey, Phil. So uh, quantum reality uh, can seem pretty weird, at least at first. Uh, in one podcast, we looked at how uh, a thing we thought of as a wave, namely light, could also be viewed as a particle. Well, how about the other way around? Can things we've thought of as particles, things like electrons and atoms, behave as if they were waves? The amazing answer is yes. To better appreciate this, Steve will give us a bit of a background on waves, a subject that is centuries old. So Steve, tell us about waves. How do they work? Well, you're, we're all pretty familiar with waves, ocean waves. One of the favorite kinds of things I like to talk about is the stadium wave. So as you know, if you're at a football game or a baseball game and someone starts the wave, you stand up and sit down and it runs around the stadium. It's a great example because you understand all you're doing as a spectator is standing up and sitting down. You're not running around the stadium. You, the people in the stadium, are the, the medium, but the, the wave is the pulse moving through the medium. Exactly, and it has a speed, which in the case of the stadium wave has something to do with how fast people's reaction time is, I suppose. It's one thing to visualize water waves, or as you say, the waves of people standing up and sitting down at a stadium. Uh, water wave is uh, an energy pulse moving through trillions of water molecules, and a sound wave is an acoustic pulse moving through trillions of air molecules. But it's another thing to picture a single particle, a single electron as a wave. How can an electron, a single particle, be a wave? Uh, that's... One of the mysteries of quantum mechanics, and what we're talking about today is what we call wave-particle duality. So something like an electron or even a complicated molecule, depending on the situation, can act like a particle or a wave. Let's go back. Uh, maybe the best thing to do, as we usually do, is to go back and look at the history of the subject, and that means the 1920s. Uh, the French graduate student Louis de Broglie said basically, wow, uh, Einstein says it's okay for waves to be particles, that is, light uh, can, can be a particle-like thing. It, it can be measured all in one place. Uh, it's not spread out at that moment. And uh, de Broglie said, well, how about the reverse? Why can't particles be waves? Uh, his professors didn't like that idea very much, uh, and they didn't want to give him his PhD, but they did ask Albert Einstein to have a look at the dissertation, and Einstein read it, and he thought it was terrific. Not crazy at all. So they had to give de Broglie his PhD. Uh, now, that was just the start, 1924. Steve, you're the quantum historian here. Waves have a wavelength, they have a frequency. What is the wavelength of an electron? So what de Broglie came up with was this, what we now call the de Broglie wavelength. And it's a very simple relationship. It's H, which is Planck's constant, which we've talked about before, uh, divided by the momentum of the particle. And momentum is simply its mass times its velocity. So for instance, if I take an electron that has nine volts of energy. So imagine it was accelerated by one of those little nine volt batteries. Nine electron volts. Nine electron volts. It's de Broglie wavelength would be a half of a nanometer. So that's 
0.5 times 10 to the minus 9 meters. That's actually reasonably sized. That's about 10 times bigger than an atom. If I took something heavier, like a nitrogen molecule, like the air molecule, under the same energy, it would be smaller, have a smaller wavelength, about 10 to the minus 12 meters. So that would be much smaller than the nitrogen molecule, so probably we shouldn't really be thinking about its wave character. And let me give you one more kind of crazy example. We can ask, what's your de Broglie wavelength, Phil? <laughs> 10 to the minus gazillion meters. Pretty much. So if I assume you're walking along at a typical walking rate, which is about three miles an hour, and I'm going to guess at your weight, which we won't broadcast <laughs> over the air, uh, it turns out your de Broglie wavelength would be 10 to the minus 32 meters. Wow. Now, getting back to classical waves, just for a moment, uh, uh, Mr. Young in the 1820s did an experiment where he sent waves at a baffle with two slits in it, and the two slits produce uh, a characteristic wave pattern where the waves interfere with each other, uh, at demonstrating the wave properties of light, and you can do the same thing with sound. Tell us about some of the early experiments that showed the wave properties of electrons. So that really came about from work done uh, at Bell Labs in New Jersey. And this is the work of Davison and Germer. And actually, Davison was in particular trying to understand whether he could use a beam of electrons scattering off atoms in a crystal to probe the atoms. He had seen the work that Rutherford had done scattering alpha particles off gold, and he was sort of trying to do the same thing with electrons. This, this Davison-Germer experiment, you know, there's a new book out, I forget the author's name, uh, The Idea Factory it's called, and it's about the early days of Bell Labs, and they had this uh, office on the lower west side. Is this where the Davison-Germer experiment was done? Uh, actually, that's a good question. I'm not sure whether... I think it actually was done I think in New York. That's that, right. It uh, wasn't New Jersey yet. It was yeah. still New York. Right? Where, where were, were matter waves first shown to be matter waves? Uh, lower Manhattan in the middle that's of New right. York City. So Davison thought by scattering electrons off, say, nickel atoms in a nickel crystal, he could learn about nickel atoms. But actually, it's kind of an interesting story. So he and Germer were working on this. And Essentially, it's a simple experiment. You shine a beam of electrons on a nickel surface, it bounces off, and you have something to detect electrons, and you vary the angle between the incoming beam and the outgoing beam. They did this experiment, and then their apparatus broke. <laughs> and this apparatus, you had to do this in vacuum. This was the 1920s. You know, it was some great craftsman who built this little, think of it as a vacuum tube, evacuated thing. So it broke every so often. Get a crack and air would leak in. When this broke, they they had some data. They didn't quite understand it. And so then they put it back together. And when you put it back together, you heat up the nickel to clean it up. And then when they did it again, they got a different pattern. And they ah. thought, oh, this is weird. So they actually went and sawed it open to look at the piece of nickel and realized it had changed its crystalline structure from being heated. And then they realized, wait a minute, rather than getting information about individual atoms, maybe the pattern of electrons scattered has to do with the crystalline nature. So this experiment really did two things. It showed off the principle, the the wave properties of electrons, but it also told us something told us something valuable about the crystal they were scattering from. Right. So 
recently or earlier before that, Von Laue and company had figured out you could scatter X-rays off crystals and understand the uh, structure of the crystals from the scattering pattern of the electrons of the X-rays. So this was sort of the analogy with electrons. But the interesting thing is Davison was still a little unsure. He took a trip to Europe, hung out with some of the big names in quantum physics. This was just after de Broglie's uh, paper had come out. That was the place to be uh, in, in quantum science in the 20s in Europe, and including in Germany in particular. Absolutely. So Davison, coming back from that trip, as he started to really understand the implication of de Broglie and everything, realized that maybe he could use this crystal scattering electrons off it to measure the wavelength of the electrons, namely that the position of the peaks of the scattered electrons would be dependent on the wavelength of the electrons. So he came back, they rebuilt their little apparatus, and on actually January 6, 1927, we know that because we have copies of the lab notebook, they convincingly saw a diffracted peak that essentially was the first demonstration of the wave-like character of a particle, namely an electron. So that's the birthday of matter waves. That's right. So that's the 1920s. Do you want to say anything about uh, matter wave experiments in the 40s or 50s? Anything else prominent comes along in those decades? Well, let me just point out the vagaries of the Nobel Prize. So Davison won the Nobel Prize. Germer didn't. <laughs> um, I never could quite figure out how... He Germer got. Was Germer a grad student or? No, Germer had been working with Davison for six or more years, but I don't think he actually had a PhD. So they gave the prize to Davison and Thompson. This is a different Thompson, the son of J.J. Thompson, hmm. who a few months later did a separate experiment. That I never did another father-son Nobel Prize That's uh, right. combination. Huh. So after the 1927 results, of course, people cleaned it up, got some nicer results. But then there was Stern in the 30s, I believe, actually diffracted hydrogen atoms and helium atoms off surfaces. So the first hydrogen atom waves. That's right, and helium atom waves. And then not too much happened. It would become a technique that you might imagine characterizing surfaces. And then in probably the 1980s, people started doing neutron diffraction, where they would actually diffract... Uh, neutrons off surfaces and make uh, use it again to study surfaces. It's a, actually a big industry to understand materials as you diffract neutrons off them. They even built interferometers with neutrons. Do, do some of these neutrons come from reactors? That's right. So in fact, in NIST and Gaithersburg, there's a cold neutron facility uh, that produces low energy neutrons that are used, among other things, for things like uh, neutron diffraction. So NIST has its own source of neutron matter waves. And that's right. Thanks, Steve. Uh, and now we're going to look at actual up-to-date experiments with matter waves. And to do that, I'd like to introduce JQI scientist Gretchen Campbell. Before we start talking about your research, Gretchen, I'd like to ask you about quantum science in the larger scheme. Uh, some of Newton's laws, for example, such as assertions about cause and effect, had to be thrown out when quantum science came along. How do you feel about that personally? Have you ever found quantum reality to be weird? Well, I guess, you know, in my experiments, I'm definitely dealing with quantum effects all of the time. And the kind of work I do, I'd say the 
I still find it pretty weird, this fact that you can actually take atoms, you know, thinking about them as matter waves, and the fact that they can actually interfere. Like, you, you can have, you know, 1 plus 1 equals 0 sometimes. Um, so I definitely find that, you know, things like that are still pretty weird and, and counterintuitive. Um, now, a lot of things uh, that have to do with quantum uh, can only be tested at the atomic scale, but size isn't the only requirement. Uh, cold temperatures also seems to be necessary. Why are most quantum experiments conducted at low temperatures, like nanokelvins? Is it because uh, quantum arrangements are so delicate, they, they fall apart? No, it's, it's actually the fact that in order to actually see these quantum effects, it turns out that for most particles, for most things, you have to get to those really cold temperatures before you can actually start to see these quantum effects. So we tend to think of our atoms, we can think of them as waves, and you can think of them as having a, a length corresponding to that wave, and it turns out that that length gets bigger and bigger the colder you get, and that allows us to actually start to see these effects. So let, let me, let me I'll, I'll trouble this, this subject just a little bit more, the, the, the business of imagery. Um, our listeners right now are listening to us, they're getting our words, but they don't have pictures in front of them. Inside one of those atom traps uh, that you use that we're going to talk about, what, what does it look like when you think of atoms, you personally, do you imagine little balls, hard particles, or do you see waves? In other words, inside a chilled atom trap, is it like a billiard? Are they like billiard balls, crisply carooming around on a felt table, or is it like waves sloshing around a swimming pool? Well, I'd say it's it's often a little bit of both. Um, you know, when we we look at the behavior of these atoms, sometimes it's a little bit easier to understand their behavior by actually thinking of them as, as billiard balls. And um, other times, it, they really seem more like waves. So I'd say actually, it's a combination of both of these things. Now, Steve and I uh, spoke just a few minutes ago about the historic Davis and Germer experiment uh, back in the 1920s, the one that showed that electrons definitely behaved like waves. They scattered off of a, a surface. Uh, and, and in just in a moment, we're going to talk about your BEC experiment. But are, are there other interesting matter wave experiments that you'd like to talk about from, from uh, yesteryear? Um, sure, there's actually been a, a lot of neat matter wave experiments over the years. I think um, something that was one of the, the first matter wave experiments was superfluid helium. Actually, back in the, the 1930s, people actually found that helium, which is actually a liquid, if you get it cold enough, could actually act. You could actually see quantum effects. It, instead of acting like a, a normal fluid, it acts like a quantum fluid. So I think that's another neat example of, of matter waves. And then this thing called BEC, Bose-Einstein condensate, which you're going to get to in another podcast. Uh, but uh, let's talk now, Gretchen, about your experiment. And yes, it is a Bose-Einstein condensate, but let's try and talk about it just in terms of there being atom waves or matter waves uh, sloshing around in this uh, atom trap of yours. How do you get the atoms cold in the first place? Okay. Well, we actually use a combination of different methods. Um, which to start out with, now these atoms actually start out pretty hot in our trap, and to begin cooling them, we actually use a combination of lasers and magnetic fields. Now it's pretty counterintuitive to think that you're actually using lasers to cool down the atoms, but it turns out by using just the right frequency of light and the right orientation of laser beams, you can actually use this to cool the atoms down to very low temperatures. We then use a second type of cooling, which is it's very similar to the way you your coffee cup cools down. If you have a you know, your hot cup of coffee, the hot atoms evaporate away and the remaining coffee cools down over time. It, it thermalizes, re-equilibrates, we like to say. Well, we actually use a, symbol, a similar method with our atoms where we can use evaporative cooling and selectively remove the hot atoms, which allows us to get a really cold sample. 
I, I've heard that 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 um, molecules as large as those those sixty fold carbon molecules called buckyballs that you can turn them into atom waves and anytime you can make something into a wave you can probably mm -hmm. split it and have it go in two paths mm -hmm. at one time and then join up again. Mm -hmm. Yeah and there I'd say I mean even with these big molecules they're always waves so all of even these big molecules always have wave properties the challenge there is can you get to you know, cold enough temperatures or small enough scales to actually see these wave properties. So it's true, even with these very big, you know, sort of these fullerenes, these big carbon buckyballs, there they've actually been able to see, even with these bigger sizes where this, the, uh, the length scale in order to see these properties is smaller, they've been able to sort of, oh, sort of see these, these small quantum effects. Um, but it's true, I, I've, I have also done experiments with other BCs where you just split the BC into two and then recombine it and see these interference effects. Um, now, I, I think um, Anton Zeilinger in Vienna was was trying to make atom waves out of viruses. I don't know if he succeeded. And 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 you know what comes after that? Bacteria? Can, can we have? Can you imagine a living thing in as as a series of waves going maybe along two different paths at one time and then coming back? Maybe not something as big as a as a mammal, much less a human, but but a virus or a bacteria, can we ever slow them down enough to make them into waves? Well, I mean, I think if you can, you know, the problem is, as I said, there's a sort of characteristic wavelength. Um, and the, the size of it, the size of the sort of quantum effects depends on sort of how big a particle is. So the challenge is the heavier and heavier something gets, the harder and harder it becomes to see these these wave-like properties. So right there at the edge between science and science fiction, I think we'll stop. That's a good stopping point. Quick recap. Waves, including light waves and sound waves, can sometimes act as if they were particles. Conversely, particles like electrons can even and even large complicated molecules can sometimes act like waves. And this is possible because of quantum behavior, a kind of reality that we didn't know anything about before the 1920s. And we're still learning. Here at the JQI, we have more than 200 people on the roster. Today, you've been listening to three of them, Steve Ralston, Gretchen Campbell, and me, Philip Shuey. Please join us again.